Hello, everybody. We are back with episode 68 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and yes, I know we are typically a day late, but we've had some uh, stuff happen in our curation process, but we are here now, and life's never a dull moment, as I'm sure my uh, co-host Mike can attest to. So, uh, Mike, uh, I usually ask how you're doing. Uh, I imagine this isn't your best of weeks, right? (laughs) A little busy, a little busy over here, but glad to be, uh, you know, even if it's a day late, still getting getting the R Weekly content out there. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to have you as always. So um, this week's curator was John Calder. He's been on our R Weekly curation team for quite a while. So, of course, my thanks to him. And, of course, everyone else from our R Weekly team members and, of course, the contributors from all of you in our audience. So let's dive into this and we're going to start going down a pretty big rabbit hole that most of us probably never even dreamed of approaching. Let me frame it like this. So for most of us every day, we're consuming some type of content in the digital sense, you know, on your computer or your mobile phone or tablet, things like that. And any, everything we see it's a rendered appropriately given the context, like a web browser is going to give us web pages. A photo browser is going to give us the photo in high resolution. We can zoom in and, and view it the right, the way we see fit. Now, when you're doing that, you're seeing what I'll call the end product of actually a pretty fascinating technical process. And 99 times out of hundred, that's usually good enough for us. We're just consuming some content. But there are times where this can be a little misleading in a sense. Now, my specific example is, without going into too much detail, I've been finishing up a high-priority Shiny app migration at work, going to a new database backend. It's one of my last things I have to finish before I can actually get my year-end vacation started. So I've been heavily motivated to push this through. Well... Part of the migration involved requiring new authentication in the forms of both a secure system account, you might call it, but also what's called a certificate, an SSL certificate. The kind of things you see kind of automatically most of the time when you go to a web page and you see that HTTPS as part of the first address. That's the secure version of that browsing experience. Well, in my situation, the the migration team had given me a certificate file. And now I have to figure out, well, I didn't need that before, but apparently I do now. This file is a mix of some metadata with a bunch of random stuff at the end, just kind of like encryption stuff. It literally looks like my kid just got on my keyboard for like five minutes and hacked away. (laughs) That's literally what it looked like to me. The problem is, is that in my deployment of this app, I can't just like somehow put this file in version controls. That'd be a huge security risk. So I got to find other ways to get this into the app's environment. And so speaking of environments, that's what I landed on is that I wanted to transform the contents of this certificate file to an environment variable that I could be, I could specify at deploy time on RStudio Connect without putting that into my code base. That is what every IT professional is going to tell you to do. Very interesting. I see how this is all about to come full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets better. Um, 
So my first attempt was to simply make an environment variable where I literally copy-pasted the contents of that certificate file. Well, that was an epic fail because apparently environment variables are very sensitive to things like line spacing and other kind of carriage mm. return type characters. So now I'm thinking to myself, well, most environment variables are usually maybe a user ID, a password, an API key, but some string of stuff. And it's usually a single line. So how the heck am I going to get this very cryptic looking certificate file into that kind of representation? And that, to finally bring it back to what this highlights about, that's where serialization plays a huge role. And I'll tell you the punchline of my epic journey in a little bit. But if you're like me out there and never were taught what serialization actually is, especially if you're in data science, and especially in the context of R, our first highlight is tailor-made for us to learn a bit with a very approachable and frankly, a very technical but entertaining read. So Danielle Navarro, um, whose creative digital art has been featured in previous highlights, she's been a big leader in that space, She's authored another terrific blog post on how serialization works in R itself and her various adventures navigating this brave new world to many of us. Now, what exactly is serialization? Well, it's the process of translating an object in your computer's memory to the fundamental building blocks of compute languages called bytes. And that representation can be saved as a file or even directly send us to someone else or some other process via direct streaming. We actually do this every day without realizing it. If you launch, say, a word processing software like Microsoft Word or the like, and you're saving that to a file so you can send it to somebody, you just did serialization. You're saving that representation from memory into an artifact, but it looks a certain way. Now, you may be wondering, that's what it looks like at the end, but in this process, what does a serialization type object actually look like? And that's where Daniel starts her post by showing examples of how you can convert practically any object type in R to a serialized version. And then when you look at that, actually try to print it out, it's basically a series random set of letters and numbers with each character representing one of those individual bytes that I referred to. If I send you that, Mike, you will never be able to tell what that object was unless you're a, a magical computer with, with a robotic brain or something. <laughs> no, I just feel like I'm walking around in the matrix when I see that. Very much, yes. I got those vibes too. And that goes to show you that that representation, when we print that out verbatim, was never really intended for our human eyes, if you will. But that is exactly, again, the type of language that a computer understands very well. That's the fundamental pieces of it. Serialization is that middle layer of going from the memory side of how the object is stored to that end side that we see at the end, like I said, a photo browser, a Word document, a web browser, things like that. That can work great for certain objects, but sometimes we, and if again, going back to another example, we often do serialization when we save data sets from R's memory into like a CSV or some other textual data format. And that's, that's easily understood. That's very, very well and good. 
But of course, not all of our data sets are always going to be in that rectangular format, especially in this age of complicated nested structures, um, nested hierarchies. You often see this with JSON data and the like. Well, that's a case where in R, instead of trying to shoehorn that into some like a CSV, you can actually use an object called RDS. This is R's binary-like serialization of any R object. And you can't, you can't really open an RDS file in anything but R itself, and you have to import it in a certain function like um, read RDS or export it with save RDS. I kind of knew this in the back of my mind, but Danielle's post reinforces this, that when you save something as an RDS or you load something from an RDS file, serialization is once again front and center in that process. And so what Danielle's really doing is for the remainder of this post, trying to get to the bottom of how serialization is incorporated in those processes and where you can see some real subtle differences in the different object types that are converted in this process. Because things like character strings, numbers, booleans, they're actually all treated differently in this RDS file. And she wanted to get pretty low level of this because she's actually embarking on a new role very soon where they're going to be looking at things like Apache Arrow and other formats that we've discussed on previous highlights. So she wanted to really get to know what base R is doing in this serialization process for these objects that are kind of the building blocks of some of the newer innovations we're seeing in data aggregation, data exporting, and interoperability between different software. So there is absolutely no way I can do the rest of the post justice with my explanations of it, but it literally gives you everything you ever would want to know about what R is doing under the hood during serialization of this very important format for us that are dealing with both standard structures, but also very complicated structures of objects in our various app development or package development and things like that. So definitely you want to sit down a bit for this. It's a lot of material to digest, but Danielle really shows her excellent technical skills, but also her storytelling ability to really walk us through this journey as the way that she started out when she did this. So Mike, what were your thoughts on kind of that exploration that Danielle made? Yeah, I was kind of in, in the same boat as you. This was a, a, admittedly a little bit above my head. I think it's probably a, a great blog to sit down with, uh, with maybe a glass of wine or a beer if you're <laughs> into that, just to, just to take the edge off. Um, but I, I did want to congratulate Danielle first on, uh, she just recently left Academia for Voltron Data, which was the creation of Wes McKinney and a few others, I think, and they're dedicated to working on the Apache Arrow project, which we've talked about on a few recent episodes. So so congrats to Danielle and very excited to see uh, and follow along with the work that she's doing at Voltron. And this is a, a really cool blog post about something that I think we all often take for granted. It's how R actually works under yes. the hood. Yes. Um, you know, for example, I didn't even know at the beginning of her blog, she, she states that an R data frame is actually represented as a list uh, where each column is an element of that list and the column is, is some atomic vector. 
with some additional metadata that tells R that this list object is, is actually a data frame and should be represented to the, the end user that way. So it, it, it's, it, uh, there's sort of an, an endless amount of information that I'm sure I, I have no idea about and that I learned from this blog. And I, I learned a few new base R functions as well, which I always get excited about. There is a function called raw to bits that literally prints out the zeros and ones behind the argument you provide to it. Yeah, so given that matrix turns, vibe again, I love it. <laughs> turns your R console into the matrix real quick. Um, and then there's two functions, serialize and unserialize, which allow you to obviously serialize and unserialize R structures. Very similar to save RDS and read RDS, which we might all be a little bit more familiar, you know, of saving maybe a model object or something like that that's not, you know, a rectangular table. Um, but the latter two functions, save RDS and read RDS, uh, they use compression to make the resultant object smaller in size. And this is something that Danielle dove into when she was trying to compare those two functions to the serialize and unserialize function and, and trying to figure out uh, you know, why they weren't yielding the same results. So that might be interesting to note. Um, this blog post also led me to opening the R internals manual for the first time. And just about everything in there looked like a foreign language to me. So <laughs> it's another humbling reminder that there is always more to learn out there. And one thing that I really liked also about Danielle's blog is that she provides citation information at the bottom of the post uh, for citing her work in a way that you can easily copy and paste, which was in another R Weekly highlight recently as well. Um, make sure that you're, you're citing all of these phenomenal resources that you're, you're learning from and, and using elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. There are lots of the, the, these, these different ways, these resources are linked and frankly, the, the technical mastery of going under the hood with our internals. I usually only do it out of necessity, but certainly there are a lot of people out there that are fascinated by this kind of tech. And this is a great way to kind of sh get into a very fundamental operation that we probably take for granted every time we, we launch R and we're completing a data analysis or a package or app development. And um, not to leave a cliffhanger about my epic journey, but the good news is, is that with discovering the serialized function before reading Danielle's post, I was able to get that certificate into a serialized fashion, but that wasn't the end result I needed. I needed to then complete that process, like we talked about, of like, what is a format that could be rendered that the environment variable stuff could understand? And that's where I put that serialized version into a base64 encoded string. Now, this is often what you see if you render, say, an R markdown report and you have the plot embedded into the report. That image is not embedded as like a, an image file as we would see in like a PNG from our camera or for we export out of our studio for a plot. It's actually base64 encoded because that's again another random set of numbers and characters, but somehow the browser in this case is smart enough to decode that when we view the web page of the report. What I did in the app that this was referencing, is I simply wrote a utility function to decode that encoded version 
unserialize it after that. So like two processes there. And then I had it to write it to a temp file that's deleted as soon as I log in to the, to the API. That's going to be filed somewhere so I don't forget because part of me hopes I never have to do it again. But part of me says, well, in case I do, there you go. I got an example of it. So that was my uh, past few days was that adventure. So this was timely in more ways than one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's a lot of work trying to get your vacation days, huh? Yeah. And for a feature that honestly doesn't change the app at all. Literally, the the MVP of this appointment was just to make sure nothing broke. So I didn't have a glitzy new feature, a glitzy new connection. It's just we rerouted from one platform to another. So sometimes it's not the most glamorous things, but in my journeys of like engineering kind of development of these applications, I always try to find the little nuggets that are maybe on their own, not, not important, but then when you put them all together, other things I've learned, it's given me exposure to additional capabilities that when I start a lot of these things, I never even dreamed of imagining. So there's, there's always useful stuff for everything. I mentioned our markdown as kind of like that way of rendering those image files um, when they're embedded in with that encoding. Well, our last highlight puts us back in the nice, comfortable zone of our markdown, but in a way that you can actually give back. I will just say that I still can't believe it's almost the end of 2021. Part of me says this year's gone pretty slow, and other parts of me says, oh, it's gone really fast. But anyway, we're here. And now for me personally, on top of finally getting that aforementioned time off and relaxing with, with family and getting some rest, it's also that time I usually do some cleaning. Things I don't need anymore, put them in boxes and figure out what to do with them. Well, when I have things that can be reused, I, like many others, will try to find a way to donate that to a charity, maybe a local Goodwill store here in the States to let others benefit from it, really. That's nothing new in the in our world, but did you know that you can also do something like this in a digital sense? So currently, as we speak, Netlify, which is a popular startup that offers easy ways to deploy websites or even web services, they launch a very fun event this month called Dusty Domains, catchy name, um, where if you have a website domain that you've kind of been sitting on, Maybe you thought you would do a cool project with it, so you you bought it while it was available, but then you kind of put it on the back burner for a bit. Well, Netlify is kind of putting the call out there that if you create any kind of website with that domain and submit it to their um, custom portal, dusty.domains, they will donate $50 right off the bat to one of the charities um, such as Black Girls Code, Code 2040, and more. Now, we'll have a link to the Netlify's um, dedicated page for this in the in the supplements of this show. Now you might be thinking, okay, well, where does R fit in the picture? Well, I mentioned R Markdown, right? Well, Allison Hill, who's now a senior data scientist at IBM's AI and strategy innovation team, and who was previously the product manager for R Markdown at our studio, well, she jumped all over this and has started a video screencast series on YouTube called 12 Days of Dusting to share her workflow for creating brand new websites with packages in the R Markdown ecosystem and deploying them to one of these, you might say, dusty domains and deploying it automatically with Netlify. 
anyone that's listened to me in, in recent times is probably not surprised that I'm a big fan of this approach because I love the practical demonstrations of how to harness things like this in the R Markdown ecosystem. And Allison has great approaches to how she structures the screencasts that have already been produced, such as taking a package like this still, bootstrapping a new website, adding on top of it things like the postcards package from Sean Cross, who's done excellent work to give you those kind of really glitzy looking profiles that you can put on your website. It looks very highly stylized and some of the I could never design from scratch. It, it's amazing. And so she takes that and then she gets a website going. And then it's not just building the code. It's also showing all the configurations that you have to do to get it tied to GitHub and Netlify so you can achieve that automation nirvana of like making a push to your repo and just having GitHub act stuff do all the rest. Netlify do all the rest so you can get that website ready to go with your fancy domain. And hence, you've helped the rest of the world with some charity on top of it. So I think I think Allison does a great job in all of her demonstrations for this. And if she's listening to this, Allison, I think you would be a natural for live screencast, but um, no pressure or anything. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Mike, what did you think about this uh, cool little adventure that Allison went on here? Yeah, it was a nice uh, mix up, I think, for us to have a YouTube video for this weekly highlight as opposed to a blog post. And I thought that she did a phenomenal job. I have not personally built a website with the still postcard or, or Net, Netlify yet, but I absolutely love how many resources there are now for building small, you know, especially personal websites. And the Dusty Domain Challenge is awesome. I think we all have a domain we purchased at one time or another for some great project idea that we had in our mind that never quite came to fruition. Uh, so it's time to put that domain to, to good use, not just for yourself, but, but for the greater good as well for some charitable causes. And, you know, as maybe another aside, one incredible thing I learned from Allison in her video was that if you edit an R Markdown file using the Markdown visual editor in R studio, you can type a colon, and then the name of the emoji that you want to include in the document, and it auto-populates all of the emojis that match that right there in the user interface for you to add to your document. That was incredible. It's, it's certainly going to uh, ramp up my use of emojis in our <laughs> markdown. Awesome. So I apologize to all my collaborators. But <laughs> as, as always, everything comes full circle as well because Allison shows off some example of the still sites at the end of her video, and wouldn't you know it, the example site she shows is Piping Hot Data by Shannon Pelegi, who was in last week's, I think it was last week's, our weekly highlights for her blog around unit testing. So that was pretty cool too. And, and again, this 20 minute long video by Allison is, is a phenomenal watch. And we do this podcast and do our best to make the conversation flow steadily. And it takes a lot of prep work for us to make it sound smooth. You do a lot of work, Eric. Um, just kind of along for the ride. But I, I totally agree that Allison would be a natural for live streaming. She's a phenomenal presenter and she was jumping back and forth between screens, but it was all so smoothly executed. So great video, great presentation. And one of these days, I know I will have a use case for Distill. So I'm looking forward to 
following along with some of the resources that Allison has put together that she showed in the video as well. And I'm still holding on tight to ericnance.com, that domain, uh, for the highest bidder out there. So feel free to contact me maybe on Twitter with any any bids you have. We can make a nice website for you, Eric. You know, I, I appreciate your your uh, your your um, generosity to uh, use that very uh, dusty domain on that one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that, yeah. Well said, Mike. Um, I think yeah. She she. I like also is that there's even it may not have been this particular one we linked to, but in this series there are times where sh- things don't go as planned. So I always think one of the best ways you learn is seeing how really talented and brilliant people like Allison handle these kind of debugging exercises. And, you know, I've, I've definitely had my share of interesting things happen with our markdown in the past. So that was great to see in, in some of the other parts of this series, how she tackled some esoteric things with combining our markdown with RM, which is one of my favorites for package management and how that factored into deployment. So yeah, I think there's at least five of these in the series thus far, and she's making more because it sounds like she is trying to do the whole 12 days of it. So definitely keep keep an eye on, on that YouTube channel that she just launched for that. So, yep. Definitely. I'm, I'm always a sucker for video content. So awesome, yeah. awesome change of pace. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe the, the Distill and Postcard and Netlify stuff, maybe it is a great way for analysts who are really kind of just comfortable writing our code and doing a native analysis to actually start working towards maybe data products or, or web development. It's, it's a pretty approachable um, way to go about building a website using uh, the, these utilities. So I think if, if it's something that you're interested in and something you're interested in branching out, um, maybe from just your kind of typical day-to-day R analysis, I would, I would highly recommend checking it out. Yep. And I finally got on the distilled train in, in recent months. I've built an internal site that basically is a distilled site indexing a few key packages we have internally and then linking to their individual places online, as well as helping with one of my uh, collaborations with the R Pharma, uh, R Consortium work groups to build a distilled site for one of our, uh, our prototype projects. So it's approachable. It's it's awesome and very elegant. And yeah, you can do lots of lots of amazing things with it, as as you mentioned. So, speaking of amazing, every issue is amazing of our weekly. Am I biased? You bet I am. But I'm in with good reason. There's a whole bunch of additional content here to sink your um, our appetite into. A couple of things that caught my eye, especially as a shiny enthusiast. Uh, again, mystery to nobody that's listening. But uh, we see an excellent um, college basketball advanced analytics shiny app using some really slick Bayesian modeling from Evan Miyakawa, who is actually a PhD student at Baylor, who's about to graduate, I believe, in a couple months or two. So what a great um, side project this has been for him. And I was fascinated by the sophistication on what's looking under the hood with the modeling here. And don't be surprised if we hear him on one of my other ventures someday soon. Also, um, other things that caught my eye were some big updates to some really important packages in the R community, like DT Plier for interfacing Tidyverse D Plier like logic with data.table as the back end. 
Uh, Package Down's gotten some great updates on kind of the default template. And uh, Targets, the very awesome workflow manager package from my uh, real colleague, Will Landau, has gotten some really interesting features around using object storage with Amazon S3. So those are those are great updates to keep your eye on. What about you, Mike? I just launched that that app by Evan. That is clean. That it is, is clean, isn't shiny it? App. Really clean tables, nice waiter waiting screen as it loaded. Really, really cool here. I don't what table package do you think he used? It looks like a mix of DT and maybe some reactable thrown in there, but it's it's very slickly styled and like you said, very cohesive look and yeah, um, very impressive. I'm, I'm in uh, preliminary talks to feature him on a future Shiny Dev Series episode. Awesome, awesome. I think he looks like he'd be a great guest just from what I've seen thus far. Um, one of the other things that I, I that caught my eye in terms of the R Weekly highlights was again Andrew Heiss with a lengthy, uh, incredible guide to working with country year panel data and Bayesian multi-level models. It's really a very econometric C post and might not be for everybody, but I like to have a lot of tools in my toolbox that aren't just machine learning. Um, so this was a fantastic blog post to read. And as always, Andrew does a, a really great job clearly articulating some pretty complex concepts that he demonstrates in his analysis. So I, I would definitely recommend checking that one out as well. Yeah, Andrew um, must have the the magic solution of finding finding balancing time with innovative research. I'm still uh, trying my best at that. <laughs> but um, yeah, actually, I work with quite a few colleagues that are heavy into Bayesian modeling across many of our analytical pipelines. So it's always great for me to see these other real world uses as I start to try to level up my skill set with that. But Andrew does a, a great job as always of explaining these very intricate uh, concepts of modeling here. Yes, yes. Very good. Well, um, there's obviously way more than that, but um, where can you find it? You should know by now, but we're going to remind you just in case. It's rweekly.org. The latest issue is right there on the homepage. And you can also find links to the, the rest of the curator team, along with ways that you can contribute awesome resources you're seeing online in the community, both via the site, as well as how you can send us a poll request on our GitHub repo. We always like to do everything in the open and that's model served very well for us. And so where you can find me in the future or where you can find this podcast, I should say, well, it's right on that homepage, rweekly.org. Click the podcast link. We're available in all the typical podcatchers out there, Apple Podcasts, Google podcast, whatever they're called. I have no idea. I just listen to a bunch of podcasts on my phone, no matter what app it is. Um, and also where you can find me, I am most prevalent, I think on Twitter these days, um, twitter.com slash drcast, as well as my adventures live streaming and doing all sorts of development chaos um, with our and shiny development, twitch.tv slash our podcast. And Mike, where can we send people to look more about you? You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And you can check us out at catchbrookanalytics.com as well. Absolutely. You and your team are doing awesome work and definitely highly recommend it. If you're needing some consulting work, give give Mike a, give Mike a call. <laughs> we'll wrap up this episode of the Our Weekly Highways podcast. As always, thank all of you for listening out there wherever you are in the world. 
we have a worldwide audience. It's always great to see the stats at the end of each episode and looking at the world map distribution of everybody's downloads. So we welcome everybody. And if you have any feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch with Mike or myself. You heard how the how to reach us. Um, we always take all feedback, always looking to improve the show as we go forward. So that'll do it for us. And we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.